Today, every answer matters more than ever before. Because whether it's about health, deliveries, or finance, some things just can't wait. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage millions of calls, texts, and chats with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to help your customers find the answers they need faster, no matter the industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash watsonassistant to learn more. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. I'd be one of my friends who's trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Okay, all right, listen to me. We know, we know that splits, stock splits, create no value whatsoever. They're pure sleight of hand, right? Do I have more pencil? They're financial alchemy. But stock splits are also exactly what we need to help keep this market moving higher, like we did today with the Dow gaining 290 points, S&P jumping 1.40%, and the NASDAQ pole voting 2.13%, in part because Apple and Tesla gave you some fantastic news about what I know should mean a thing, a 4-for-1 and a 5-for-1 stock split, respectively. Again, no new value, but boy, do people love it. There's a reason we have to feed the bull with more nourishing stock splits, and I'm going to tell you why. Years ago, individual investors deserted the stock market. After the brutal losses of the dot-com implosion in 2000-2001, the staggering declines of the financial crisis 2007-2009, they gave up on the asset class. Oh, every time they started tiptoeing back, it started looking enticing, something would go wrong, uh, the flash crash, two, uh, 2015 uh, mini crashes. But in the past few years, beating down individual investors, as well as a lot of younger investors, intrigued by low to no commissions, finally started buying stocks again. Despite all the gray beards telling you it's impossible to beat the market, despite the supposedly brilliant money managers warning you that the world was ending this spring, this new crop of investors just keeps coming and coming and coming. The rally in the market and their emergence, come on, there's no coincidence. Oh, these newbies, they weren't deterred when Warren Buffett told them to stick to index funds. Now, I got a lot of respect for Buffett, but he's never been good at timing the market. Hey, not a style, he'll tell you that. So lately, he's made some colossally bad calls, except for Apple. He did dump the airlines at the bottom. Some of that's American Express at Wells Fargo. Whoa! Anyway, the new generation of investors doesn't really care about Warren Buffett. I mean, they think they only really know him from Dave Portnoy. That's right. They are more likely to follow this fellow Dave Portnoy from this outfit called Barstool, a.k.a. Davey Day Trader. This guy's a fascinating figure, a sports guy who got into stocks after the pandemic canceled everything, making it impossible to bet on sports. Now, I know he's a real iconoclast, Portnoy, who doesn't profess to know much beyond that stocks just go higher. You may have a complaint with Portnoy. Portnoy's complaint. But it's something that's made him very right over the past four months. Hey, if you just just started trading stocks in March and April, I mean, stocks do just go up, right? I mean, that is his philosophy, which is why this guy's been running circles around much more sophisticated professionals, and they hate him. I bring up Portnoy because he embodies this retail investing revolution, albeit in a more flamboyant, less fundamental-oriented way. I mean, the guy's having a great time. We're trying to make money. He does make money, too, but you you get the picture. Individuals are storming the barricades, breaking through the condescending conventional wisdom that says it's impossible to consistently beat the market. 
like Fang. Wait, was that hard? I got them for my kids. Yet people are picking stocks again using their own styles, whatever works for them. And for one, I love it. I love it. If we can help educate you once you're in and we've nudged the process in a positive way, well, then two cheers for capitalism, the vanguard of the revolution, the 13 million traders on Robinhood. Together with their little John and Friar Tuck fellow travelers, they've become an incredibly powerful cadre. I know because they've infiltrated my Twitter feed. Even before we became COVID prisoners, they were constantly stopping me on the street. And I love that, too. It, it was pre-COVID. You know what their biggest complaint was? That stock prices were too high. No, not, not too high like price earnings multiples and price to sales multiples. Not relative valuations. They were talking about, yes, the literal stock price. They simply couldn't buy enough shares in their favorite companies because their prices were too high. Which brings me back to stock splits. Every professional knows that this is meaningless. One share of Amazon at $3,160 is no different from 10 shares at $316 or 100 shares at $3,160. In theory, they're right. But in real life, people aren't calculators. If you've only got 10 grand to work with, then yeah, a $300 stock feels a lot different than a $3,000 stock. And I'm not denigrating 10 grand is a lot of money. I lived in my car for a second. I was doing it for 50 bucks. Anyway, this moment reminds me of the 80s and 90s, the greatest bull market of my lifetime, when tons of regular people made fortunes buying and selling individual stocks, including yours truly. Back then, the stocks wanted, the, the people, what did they want? They wanted stock splits. And executives, eager to please individual investors, would give them splits that had shock value that enticed many investors into the market. See, these were, they were great signals. Stocks, splits were great signals of financial health and sales and earnings momentum. Like, look at me, look at me back then. Occurring pretty much when any stock reached the $100 barrier and crossed it. But as individuals got blown out, big institutions came to the fore. They love ultra-high share prices because that meant lower commissions. When you're a money manager, you pay commissions on a per-share basis. So if Apple does a four-for-one split, each trade costs you four times as much, and they don't like that. In short, splits are good for home gamers, but bad for professionals. House of pain. But until recently, there weren't that many home gamers. Apple did a seven-for-one split in 2014. Nobody seemed to care. Now, though, something's changed. Elon Musk, the visionary behind the technology company, this Tesla, has decided to split his $1,500 stock uh, 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 into five pieces, giving the Robinhood cadre exactly what they want. Maybe it shouldn't have gone up, but it did. It went up 13% today. Again, stock splits create no value whatsoever. I keep doing this so you get the picture. This is no more pencils. It isn't two large pens, a half and a half. We're talking about the difference between $1 and four quarters. Exact same thing. Slightly different presentation. You could say it's crazy for a stock to rally 13% on a split, and you'd be right. I said crazy like a fox. Because we know what happens after the split. This new cohort of investors, the ones who love low-dollar amount stocks, will start buying and holding these best-of-breed names rather than the darn penny stocks. They've been ignoring these. They've been buying crap. Now they're going to be buying good. And the thing about retail investors is that they can make more for a, for a stable shareholder base than hedge funds because they, the pros have no loyalty. They just soon short just go long yet. CEOs, wake up. I'm going to be on this topic like white on rice because the stock market revolution will be televised, at least by me. So let me give you, you know what? I know what you want. I'm going to give you the 10 companies that would be nuts not to split their stocks right here. Even as I know this creates no more value, then I'm not going to, I'm not rocking any more pencils. Like Ticonderoga is going to come after me. All right. One, 
Amazon. I mean, the world leader in retailer and cloud infrastructure. I mean, are you kidding me? Two, Alphabet, which is showing signs of unlocking value. If they bring more fresh entertainment sports to YouTube, the Robin Hood crowd would eat this thing up. Three, Chipotle. Hey, the restaurant that's benefiting the most from the pandemic thanks to its digital prowess, the Tesla of burritos for Netflix. Duh. Five, NVIDIA, the intel of our year. I think CEO Jensen Wong could, could have an Elon Musk-style cult. I definitely get that kind of following. If he'd split the stock, the guy's a modern-day da Vinci in a black leather jacket. Six, Adobe, the digital media and marketing kingpin that democratizes tech and helps businesses large and small harness the power of the Internet. Shantanu, I saw you on another show. It's okay. Seven, hold it. Yes, Costco. This is the best brick-and-mortar retailer on earth. I am a proud member, but my wife is, I'm a gold star. My wife has got that black card, you know what I mean? Um, it, it's got the lowest prices, the most motivated workforce, and a treasure on shopping experience. Costco demanded masks when no one else would. Now, everybody does it. Eight is Home Depot. Okay, this is the kind of story where individuals will be saying, wow, it was so packed. Oh, because social distance. So packed, so good at responding to the virus. The best place to fix my house up with that low interest rate, I would have bought the stock. The stock's too high for the Robin Hood crowd. They should reward shareholders with a split. Nine, Facebook. Cheryl, Mark. I think the public relations problems are larger behind them, and the move to help small businesses sell their goods will be huge. Finally, 10, Microsoft. This thing just made it in the $200 club, which is the cutoff for what these new investors are willing to pay. They love to own Microsoft, but not at $200 and change. Sadia can fix that with a press release. Hey, look, I go in all day. ServiceNow, Dexcom, United Health, Clorox, Shopify. They're all great candidates for a split, especially Shopify, which is knocking on the $1,000 club because they help people sell stuff online. Today, the idea that splits means anything, I, I know, I know it's heresy. But do you know when I worked at Goldman Sachs in 83, it was gospel? Here's the bottom line. Logically, stock splits shouldn't matter. But since when is the stock market logical? In the real world with real humans, splits obviously make a huge difference to a rapidly growing contingent of young individual investors. If you want the market to keep climbing, these 10 companies and many more need to start taking their cue from two guys I regard as pretty smart, Tim Cook and Elon Musk. Let's call them the best CEOs in America. Executives. Right now, I'm just begging you, look at what Apple and Tesla have done with their stock splits. Remember, the size of the price tag matters with this crowd. I've been around a lot longer than you have. You want this no-commission-paying crowd in your stock. Chuck in Arizona. Chuck! Greetings, Mr. Kramer. How are you today? I'm having a good one. How about you? All right. Uh, thanks for putting that Cowboys fan in his place yesterday. Well, he was very ill-advised to come into my house. I have to protect the I house. I agree, and I'm glad that you took control of your house. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, right. that was, that was, it was a suboptimal phone call. What's going on? Uh, let's talk stock here. Um, I bought C-Limited on Pete Nigerian's unusual activity a while back. Right. And I continue to hold it. It peaked at 145 and now retreated back to the 120s. The earnings report next week. Do I hold or trim or ring the register? What does Dr. Kramer prescribe? Uh, it's up 200%. I smell the powerful odor of greed. And I will never go against the Nigerian because they happen to be my friends. But that's a, yeah, look, bulls make money, bears make money, and hogs. Eric in Michigan. Eric. Hello, Jim. How are you today? I am doing well, thank you. How about you? Very well, thank you. I am an avid Mad Money watcher and appreciate your candor. Let me just say thank you. that. 
Uh, my question is on a company called At Home, symbol H-O-M-E. Yes. I was in the store back in June and was very impressed with their variety and pricing. It's a discount home improvement store that's massive in size. Uh, the stock gym has run up from about $2 to 16 in the past three months. So my question is, do you think there could be more upside? You know what? Lee Bird came on the show. It was like about 5 bucks. He's CEO. And I was thinking, holy cow, man, this thing's a real mess. He told a positive story, and the positive story's playing out, but it's also playing out for Wayfair, too. Well, let's get him on. I think the guy gave us a triple. I want to know from him rather than from me. All right. Hey, you guys notice the Nalgene bottle? I mean, like, am I like the uh, – do I have game or what? Anyway, stock splits used to, to happen all the time when a stock went over 100. And then they went away, but now they're coming back. And they make a huge difference in getting that right shareholder base. So, you guys have your marching orders. I'm going to be gentle at first. Because I am Jimmy Chill. Oh, man, buddy, tonight, Cisco just reported the closeout. I've got the earnings exclusive. It looks like, I don't know, when Chuck Robbins maybe can tell us something. Then, can this stock market keep heading higher? I'm going off charts to find out the technicals are signaling. And most of the COVID vaccine stocks are taking a hit here, which is why I prefer drug plays with multiple shots on goal. I'm eyeing one of them tonight. Do not miss my sit down with Emergent Bio and stay with Stocks Blitz and stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. The goal? Explain the 1990s in exactly 60 songs. Tupac, Warren Hill, You Oughta Know, Cream. The greater goal? Move past cheap nostalgia to something deeper and weirder and better. My name is Rob Harvilla. I'm a music critic at The Ringer. And whether you're full of teenage angst or you feel bored and old, whether you don't know the song at all or you know it far too well, my new show will take you through the decade one song at a time. It's 60 songs that explain the 90s. Follow and listen for free on Spotify. Never forget when a company reports earnings, there's really nothing more important than the forecast. But, and this is a sir, mix a lot kind of but, that forecast can be tough to interpret. Look at Cisco, the networking titan that just reported some strong results after the close, with one notable exception. The forecast was suboptimal. Management guided for a 9 to 11% decline in revenue this quarter and a 16% earnings decline, which was a bit worse than Wall Street expected. So the stock got hammered in after hour trading, unfortunately inflamed by a surprising personnel shift we will get right up into at the top. Even though Cisco's been transforming itself into more of a software and services play for years, that's now more than half their business, which is way ahead of schedule. They still sell a lot of enterprise hardware that's been hammered by the pandemic. Still, I got to wonder whether this truly grim forecast that is sending the stock down may be one of these things where it could be UPOD, under promise and over deliver. Let's go straight to the source with Chuck Robbins, the chairman and CEO of Cisco Systems, to get a clear picture of the quarter and an outlook for the future. Mr. Robbins, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, Chuck, I trust your family staying safe, team staying safe. Everybody's good, and I hope your family is as well, Jim. Hold in there. All right, so, Chuck, uh, there are very few CFOs that I would mention right at the top. Uh, As a matter of fact, probably one, and that's Kelly Kramer, and not related. And and she's retiring. And I have to tell you, Chuck, uh, 
it's it's a bit shocking when I heard it on the call. And you can imagine there'd be some people who say, you know what? She's so good. I got to worry what's going on. Can you allay some fears, given the fact that you and I both know she's probably among the top three or four in the country? Well, first of all, Kelly is amazing, Jim. You're absolutely right. And she's been a great partner for five years. She's been in the job almost six years. And as she was telling me she wanted to do this, she was reminding me and telling me the average tenure of a CFO and that she had already exceeded that. So uh, anyway, I think, you know, she's she's telling me she's going to focus on uh, boards and investments. And, uh, you know, the key thing is that she's agreed to stay on for whatever period of time we need until we can actually get a successor on board. So I think she's committed to our success and she's going to help us actually through that process. So we'll we'll end up with a uh, a great CFO, big shoes to fill, but I'm confident we'll have a great CFO to succeed, Kelly. All right. Now, I was kind of confused about what uh, Kelly and the forecast and some of the uh, more downbeat things you said, because you have said that 2020 was not the year for corporate for enterprise 5G. You have said that 2020, even before the pandemic began, was not the time, more of an investment time for you. And next year is, the, the, is when you'll shine. Why is this any different from what you've been saying? Well, Jim, I'm not sure. I, I think that uh, I said that it doesn't feel much different today than it did 90 days ago. And, um, you know, we have a, a significant business that is related to corporate headquarters facilities, and there are no people in those headquarters right now. And so there's a lot of discussion around what's corporate real estate look like. I, I personally believe that once we get through the vaccine period, that uh, people will want to get back to the offices in general, and it's going to be fine. Uh, and we're going to use this opportunity to actually shift our investments and prepare for that moment. And I think that when we get to the other side of this thing, the strategy and the portfolio we have, we're going to be fine. Now, I have been on a series of phone calls, and when they're personal, they're on Zoom. And when they're corporate, they're on WebEx. So I have to believe that even if everybody does stay away from the corporate headquarters, WebEx can be a big profit center. Yeah, Jim, I heard several comments about people who were questioning why WebEx didn't carry the day for us today. And, and WebEx grew double digits, so we had good success with it. But it is in the context of our almost $50 billion business, you know, it's a, it's a small percentage. It's a very small number right. in, the, in that context. So, uh, you know, we had success. It's still growing, and uh, the teams are doing a great job. There's a whole lot of innovation that's planned over the coming months for that platform. So we're excited about what's going on. And as we've talked about, you know, it is secure uh, and it's enterprise grade. And uh, that's where it shines. All right. Now, there was a, a note of hope that I wanted to drill down on. You said you saw some strength in the very high end of enterprise and in federal. Why wouldn't those be the beginning of more strength rather than less? In other words, it starts with the richest and then it ch- uh, trickles or cascades down, depending upon your outlook. Well, that's typically what we see, Jim. So that is, uh, that's an accurate uh, assessment of what we've seen historically. I think the question is just timing. You know, we're, we're sitting and we're watching the, the congressional debate right now about stimulus, and so many of these mid-sized companies, you know, have actually benefited from both the Treasury and the Congress actions that we've seen to date. So there's a lot of uncertainty around what happens from here, a lot of uncertainty about do we get this pandemic under control? I mean, some of the countries that have opened up around the world have, have now begun to slowly close back down a little bit right. because of reemergence of the virus. So there's still a lot of uncertainty. But, you know, we did see strength in our service provider business in Europe and Asia. 
We saw strength in the very high end of enterprise and federal, as we discussed. Uh, and we saw some countries that, be, as they come out of this, that actually started to spend again. So we, uh, you know, we, it gives us hope that, and, and a belief that when we get to the other side, the technology and the solutions that we built are going to be more relevant at that point than they were coming into this. Well, Chuck, a lot of us are rooting for you to get to uh, 50 to 51 percent service at, at, and software and uh, kind of felt that when that happened, it would the margins would flip. Uh, is it the pandemic that's keeping that down? Because this would have been a quarter where I said, wow, if you told me they were going to be able to do this three years ago, I think the stock would be dramatically higher. Well, Jim, I think the, the thing that happened with uh, the margins this quarter was that we're still we're now actually the DRAM benefit uh, is uh, has has reversed on us a little bit. And Kelly right. talked about that. We also had some logistics expense just trying to manage the supply chain dynamics. Our supply chain team has done a great job, but we also had some heavy logistics uh, costs during the quarter. And, you know, there are some pricing pressure that we're seeing out of the marketplace right now. Customers are stressed. Uh, competition is aggressive, but we're we're committed. And if you look at our gross margins today versus where they were four or five years ago, we've gradually seen them improve. And I think that we'll continue to see that over the next three to four years as we continue this march towards more and more software. All right. Let me ask you a question. And this is just a, a dice roll in my case. But can Cisco step uh, uh, pick up uh, Huawei business if Huawei really uh, becomes a national security concern for everyone in the world? Well, for sure, if, you, if customers are looking at replacing or any vendor uh, with, you know, technology, particularly in the routing platforms and the backbone platforms, we clearly don't play in the 5G radio space. But uh, those are areas that we could potentially benefit. We have had some early conversations with customers. We've seen a couple of customers move. Uh, but uh, I think the thesis is there, and we'll work as hard as we can to actually win that business when it becomes available. All right. Well, look, Chuck, I know. Uh, please tell Kelly, uh, thank you for everything she's done for so many of the shareholders are watching. And I understand uh, your conservatism is the way I'm looking at it. And it's always great to see you, sir. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. That's Chuck Robbins, chairman and CEO of Cisco. Stock is down, perhaps down too much. Stick with quick. Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, or Fire TV and start watching now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. Everyone's asking the same question. Can this juggernaut of a market just keep bursting higher? I mean, it's highly unusual. Uh, frankly, it's the first time I've ever seen it like it. So tonight we're going off the charts trying to get every single piece of information out here to help you. This time we're going with Carly Garner. She's a, a, Carly Garner is a brilliant technician who's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading and the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading to get a better read on the situation because she called something very interesting to our attention. Garner loves to tell us about the Commodity Futures Trading Commission's weekly com- commitments of traders report, the COT which tells you what large speculators, small speculators, and commercial hedgers are doing in aggregate. We care about the large speculators, meaning institutional money managers. And according to this data, we're seeing a very clear trend. These futures traders, after all this, 
are extremely bearish. You know that they're holding the most aggressive long position in the 10-year Treasury note in the last 52 weeks and the second largest net short position in the S&P over the same time frame? They've been building these positions gradually, but it is safe to say that the big money's betting stocks will collapse, not just go down, but collapse, and money will flow back into bonds. But the thing about these lopsided trades is that they often blow up in your face. Ironically, these bears could be the very thing, the very reason, actually, that keeps pushing the market higher in the face of not-so-hot fundamentals, or at least the broad economy. When you have too many professionals betting against a given asset, what we call a crowded trade, you tend to get a short squeeze. Go on to face of what we're seeing right now. Most of the daily active trading volume seems to be coming from exhausted short sellers who feel compelled to cover meaning buy back whatever they shorted to close out their positions. Garner says these shorts then rebuild their confidence for some reason and come right back. But they're always more motivated uh, when they've given up, which puts upward pressure on prices. So in other words, they try to sell, betting it'll fall, and it ends up going higher, and they reach. And that's what she's seeing in the market. So let's take a closer look at the daily chart of the E-mini S&P 500 futures. Now, in Garner's view, not much has changed from last week. The uptrend remains intact. Most most importantly, though, the S&P has now filled in the big gap, big gap down from February 24th, when Wall Street first got very serious about COVID. If we keep getting good news, Garner thinks the S&P could benefit from another short squeeze that would take us to new highs at around 3,400 which is up less than 1% from here, but pretty, you know, relentless, right? We're practically close enough to taste it. But we get to 3,400, then longer term, she believes, 3,600 is in the cards. We don't even have a chart that's high enough for that. However, now that we've filled the gap, Garner says this could open the door to some selling, maybe down to 3,100, and that would be a little, you know, you'd be gasping if that occurred. Down to 3,100 if we get bad news on the pandemic front or on the macro uh, front or the earnings front. So Garner believes it's foolhardy to be aggressively bullish right here, at least short term. This is a weak moment for the S&P in terms of seasonal tendencies. Remember, August is supposed to be a really bad month. And the ceiling of resistance at 3,400 doesn't help. More worrisome, when you look at the important momentum indicators like the relative strength, the RSI, and the Williams percentage R, Osseter, you know Larry Williams, you do his stuff, he's great. They're both mildly overbought, suggesting that we could come up too far, too fast, might be due for a pullback. Those are a little daunting. In Garner's view, the uptrend, though, is not in danger. You might get some sort of nasty short-term sell-off like we had in June, but it's not in danger. And that means any sell-off is going to be used to buy. You should do the same. How about the monthly chart of the E-mini S&P 500 futures? Now, that paints a much more bullish picture, at least in the medium term. Since early 2018, this market's been in what's known as a megaphone pattern, okay? I like that one, megaphone pattern. Uh, It looks like a megaphone. Where we bounce between irrational exuberance and irrational fear. Right now, the top of the megaphone is near 35.50. Garner thinks that that price would indicate irrational exuberance, but that doesn't mean it won't happen because we traded up to the high end of the megaphone in early 2018 and then again in this February. Each of these moments were followed by extreme pullbacks, though. But before we start worrying about the next major leg down, let's see what the world looks like with the S&P above 3,500. So, again, let's just recap. She thinks the market is going to go up. It could go up substantially. It might have a quick downturn because we're in a seasonally difficult time and you've got to pounce if we get that. One last point. The bond market. 
The bond market is a lot bigger than the stock market and a lot more powerful. So why don't we check out the monthly chart of the benchmark 10-year Treasury? When Treasury prices go up, their yields go down, and that's normally a real bad sign for the economy. If you look at the relative strength index, the 10-year is incredibly overbought. Look at that, right? I mean, that's just incredible. Whoa. Uh, the last few times we reach these levels, I let them all your sell-offs. Garner thinks this blatantly overstretched rally in treasuries could be coming to an end, although it might have one last hurrah that could take yields back down to last week's lows. Uh, pull it all together, and the charts as interpreted by Carly Garner suggest that we could hit some short-term turbulence with the S&P getting slammed while bonds roar. But once that's out of our system, she's betting the stock market will resume its long march to new highs and beyond. And she's been right so far. The bottom line. Even if there's a pullback, Garner doesn't think the Bears can win right now, if only because there are just too darn many of them. We have lots of short sellers who get squeezed every time something good happens like today. And until the shorts collectively give up their ghosts, their pain is your game. Much more Mad Money Head, including my exclusive with, with Emergent. That's a company that's emerged as a COVID vaccine play. But does it have other tricks up its sleeve? I'm going to talk with the CEO. Man, it's a stock up 18% this week alone. And it may not be on your radar. I'll reveal the name when I sit down with the CEO. And I got to tell you, I like it. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the lightning round. So stay with Kramer. Most of the COVID vaccine stocks are getting hammered right now. As Wall Street finally realizes, maybe it's a zero-sum game. They can't all be winners. You don't need a dozen different vaccines. There might be room for a few. But this is a very competitive space. I mean, Moderna got a $1.5 billion deal for the government yesterday, and stock barely budged today. And it was a big up day. And that's why I prefer drug plays with what I call multiple shots on goal, including both COVID and non-COVID treatments in the pipeline. Take Emergent Biosolutions. That's a biotech with a tried-and-true vaccine business that's developing a pair of COVID treatments for COVID using blood plasma from people who've already beaten the virus. And by the way, those who have beaten it, please give. Please give blood. Very promising. More importantly, Emergent has a big contract manufacturing business, and they've been signing deals with virtually every company that's trying to develop vaccine. I've been recommending this one since we last spoke to the CEO on May 4th, watched him, listened, said, hey, this is a good one. Stock was under 80. Now it's nearly 128, thanks to a fabulous quarter a couple weeks ago. Emergent delivered a gigantic top and bottom line beat thanks to their booming contract manufacturing business, and management raised their full year forecast dramatically while also giving great guidance for the quarter. Stock surged to 137 last week before pulling back to the big rotation out of safety stocks lately, though it's rebounded 6% today. I love this story. Why bet on the individual vaccine makers when you could bet on the arms dealer that's working with just about everybody? Don't take it from me, though. Let's check in with Robert Kramer. No relation. The president and CEO of Emergent Biosolutions. Get a better sense of the quarter and where his company's headed. Mr. Kramer, welcome back to Bad Money. Thanks, Jim. Good to talk to you. Good to see you. Yeah, it is good to see you, sir. Uh, I want to go right to what's going on because you have a fabulous deck after your quarter. And there's some comments that the uh, HHS secretary, Alex Azar, had to say that make it sound like that your manufacturing capabilities could be the key to beating this pandemic. Well, Jim, as you know, we're right in the middle of uh, a number of COVID-19 initiatives, both on the vaccine development and manufacturing services front, as well as the therapeutic development front. And since we last spoke in early May, we've signed almost $1.4 billion worth of development and service contracts with organizations like AstraZeneca, with Johnson Johnson, with HHS. And then on the therapeutic side, we're super pleased to have been able to partner with organizations like Mount Sinai Health Systems in New York 
and immunotech to support the collection of human plasma for this potentially critically important uh, therapeutic treatment. So we, we've been busy, uh, and as an organization, we're proud to do everything we can to help our government as well as strategic partners uh, in this fight against the COVID pandemic. All right, well, let's speak about the partners because you have uh, tremendous information about them in your uh, in your published materials. Uh, I want to start with Novavax because they get three uh, dots, so to speak. Uh, you can mean development services, drug substances and drug products. So you are obviously and all within America, with all within Maryland, you are doing uh, you're you're close side by side with Novavax. So we're, we are close with them. We've done a lot of uh, development support for their candidate. Uh, in, in terms of getting it ready for larger scale manufacturing. So whether it's them or J&J or AZ, again, we're pr- proud to partner with these uh, organizations who are right in the middle of this fight alongside of us. All right. So I'm uh, trying to get in. It looks like I might have some good fortune to, in the J&J uh, J&J gigantic, a gigantic test, the trial, because they have it over 65. And uh, and they're talking about being able to make billions. But you're part of the reason why they make, can make billions, correct? Well, we've partnered with J&J, basically, Jim, to be their U.S. supply chain solution for COVID-19 vaccines. So they clearly have responsibility for the clinical development uh, of their candidate. We have partnered with them to put our manufacturing and development muscle behind that candidate and be able to quickly scale the manufacturing process to be able to meet the operation warp speed and the U.S. government's need for, as they've said, hundreds of millions of doses of a number of vaccine candidates. So, again, we're proud to play that collaborative partner role uh, in development and manufacturing services for J&J, as well as for AstraZeneca. Well, AstraZeneca is a, a foreign company, and, and Oxford is obviously a foreign university. How does that work out with Emergent, which is a very American company? Well, I think it works out because our expertise is in domestic-based manufacturing and development services uh, for vaccines as well as for therapeutics. Uh, as we've talked about in the past, we also have a devices business unit uh, as well as therapeutics. So that we're well-rounded in terms of being able to make a number of contributions to strategic partners in this COVID-19 space. Robert, uh, are we going to beat this thing? Yes, we are. I mean, I I am increasingly, uh, but still cautiously optimistic, Jim, uh, that we have a number of shots on goal. We have six large pharma players in this space, plus uh, another probably 12 candidates that are in also in advanced stages of development. Uh, I mean, the organizations in terms of that public-private partnership are working like they never have in the past. Uh, we will beat this. Uh, it's just a matter of time, quite frankly, before we have uh, demonstrated to have safe and effective vaccines and therapeutics that are made available to the public. Well, I feel much better. You're right in the thick of things. You know more probably than almost everybody, maybe everybody. I feel much better after speaking to you. Of course, I also feel great about your stock. Robert Kramer, CEO, President, Executive Director of Emergent Bio Solutions. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks, Jim. Take care. Look, we've been right on this one, and it's obvious that they are the linchpin behind so much of what has to go right. Uh, We discovered them. 
They're terrific. And money's back here. It is time! It's time for the light real quick! And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round question. Let's start with Mary in Oregon. Mary. Hi, Kim, from the land of beavers and ducks. Uh, thank you for your time and expertise and for your kind and efficient staff. Oh, you're very good. Uh, yeah, my, staff is great. And stretch, believe are. me. Okay. Uh, my my question is about FLIR, who manufactures intelligence sensing equipment. They reported yeah, yeah, You know, Mary, this stock should be higher. I like FLIR. I don't understand it. Thermal imaging uh, and security. I don't understand the drop-off. I, I, I'd like to be a part. Let's go to John in Georgia, please. John. Big Georgia booyah, Jim. All Long right. I'll take that. Here. Hey, my question is around a company uh, coming to market with a lot of excitement around them. Their recent milestones of an MOU with Magna International selling out of their 2022 production and EMAAS rental car business model bode well for the company. What are your thoughts about Fister currently trading under SPAQ? Um. I have to do more on that. I mean, David and I were going over uh, some of the SPACs before uh, this very morning, and they are hard for me to keep track of, frankly, so I've got to do more work. I am sorry. There's just so many of them. They are overwhelming me right now. Let's go to Frank in New York. Frank. Jim, thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Everything you do for human investors like myself. The company I'm calling about is uh, a Chinese electric car company making the most affordable cars coming to the uh, U.S. market next week with a seven grand incentive from the U.S. government. The company I'm talking about is Candy Technologies. What are your thoughts on uh, Candy, uh, to me, it's go-karts. It's more of a Polaris kind of thing, PII, and I'm an American. And I'm going to recommend buying PII. Let's go to Dan in Kentucky. Dan. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Hey, uh, called about Zoom Info. Hey, Henry uh, Chuck was on... Uh, the other day, and the IPO came out in June. Dan, Dan and- you're like me. You listened to him. He sounded really good. I thought the story sounded great. I, I mean, to me, the thing seems like a buy. I don't know. I think you can come back. Let's go to Mike in Maryland. Mike, Mike, Mike. Hey, what's going on, Jim? I just wanted to uh, see what your take was on Service Master Global Holdings. I like Ticker maintenance. I've always liked Service Master. Actually, it's one of the first stocks I ever bought. Uh, this is just a, bre- a bread and butter company, and I like it. Let's go to Mike in Minnesota. Mike. Professor Kramer, I love your trading books. I hope you're considering writing another. Uh, you know, there's no money in books. There's no time in books. And, like, my wife doesn't want me to write a book. So I'll, 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 I'll talk about it this weekend. What's going on? Go ahead. That was it? The but- well, I didn't get stuck. Oh, Mike Hello. in Michigan. Let's take a series of mics. Let's try this mic. Mike. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? I feel like I got a VIP pass to talk to the one and only Tim Kramer. <laughs> I wish I were a VIP. I'm like everybody else. Believe <laughs> me. What's going on? Hey, I'm an associate broker for EXP, and I want to know if the EXPI is going to keep tearing it up like it has been. I think it is. I mean, I think real estate's been waiting for a cloud-based solution, and it's found one. Uh, and and I, I think that, but look, my wife's in that business, and I, I think that there's a lot of room for a company like EXPI. Let's go to Ben in Colorado. Ben! 
Jim, you must make a lot of people proud. That's better than any trade. Good job. Thank you. Now, the question, uh, for, uh, another fine trader, Mr. Steve Grasso, says that this is one of the most undervalued companies on the market. I'm taking you home, Trinseo. Not, not a great company. I, I know the company from Berwyn, PA. I just, I'm not going to recommend it, okay? It's just a spin-off, not so great. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Every day where the high-flying stay-at-home tech stocks got their groove back, I want to focus on a digital play that's still got a lot of room to play catch-up. It's called J2 Global. This is a hybrid online media and cloud service play. You might know them as IGN, Mashable, which I love, Humble Bundle, Speedtest, PC Mag, another I use, Offers.com, Spiceworks, and many others, including some we're going to talk about. They also got a host of cloud services. Think of an uh, online fax platform, a virtual phone system, cloud-based data backups, email marketing solutions. When the pandemic hit, J2 got clobbered along with everything else, but then the stock struggled to rebound, ultimately plunging to a five-year low last month. But that makes not sense. All right, not a lot of sense. Was, all right, well, some of that makes sense because roughly half of the revenue comes from advertising, and this is not a great time in the ad market. Some of it was salacious. Roughly six weeks ago, a short seller published a vicious note that more or less accused management of self-dealing. Allegations the company vociferously denied. Stock got slammed. Those shorts must be pretty upset now, and not just because J2 refuted the important charges and made some positive governance changes, but mainly because on Monday night, the company reported a much better-than-expected quarter, a nice revenue beat coupled with a big earnings beat, and management reinstated their full-year guidance with a forecast that was well ahead of what Wall Street anticipated. Plus, they announced a five-year buyback that could potentially retire more than a fifth of the share count. And on the strength of that news, the stock immediately jumped 15% yesterday, tacked on another 2.2% today. I think it has much more room to go. Let's dig deeper with Vivek Shah. He's the CEO of J2 Global to find out more about the quarter and what he sees going forward. Mr. Shaw, welcome back to Mad Money. Well, it's great to be here, Jim. All right, so Vivek, how is it possible in an environment where I happen to know, as you know, I know this business, advertising is crumbling across the board, and yet you put up some numbers that had a 10% increase. Seems remarkable in a COVID-19 environment. You know, Jim, Q2 was as punishing an environment uh, for media and, and ad players as any of I've ever seen. I've been in the business for 25 years. It was a tough environment. So the fact that we were able to post the kind of growth that we posted was nothing short uh, of remarkable. And I think we had a few things going for us. So first, you know, when I was on the show uh, in the fall, we talked about our ad business really being focused on driving customers and delivering customers and performance and not impressions and brand goals. And I think being performance driven uh, really helped us in an environment like this. Second, we're driven by verticals. So we're in the tech vertical, the gaming vertical and healthcare and healthcare in particular did really well for us in the quarter. We executed against our M&A. M&A, as you know, and acquisitions are a big part of what we do in the baby center acquisition in particular. Uh, did really well for us in the quarter. And then I think the last thing is that we're seeing a flight to quality. I think the advertising world and the media world in general, you're seeing marketers moving back to brands that they know, that they recognize, and they trust. You named a number of them, number of them at the beginning of the show. I think that benefited us too. You know, Vivek, I go to Everyday Health, and it's got basically a tip of the day for, for COVID. 
And I know that it's not necessarily trying to lead me to buy something. It's just the tip of the day. And I think that uh, when I look at it today or look at it, you always have some potential mosquito bites, which unfortunately I suffer from a particular uh, antihistamine problem. I find it valuable. And I guess that what's happened is that advertisers are finding it legitimate, which is very hard when it comes to healthcare online. No, look, you're 100% right. So, so the business itself, the Everyday Health Group, grew 30% of the quarter. So that was a huge driver for us. The interest in health content, to your point, has never been higher. But it's not just COVID and virus-related content. There's a lot of wellness and both physical and mental wellness content that seems to be performing really well. The other aspect of this business that's really important to understand is that when you look at the way that pharmaceutical marketers market. They market to patients and they market to physicians. The amount of money that pharma spends against physicians is well in excess of what it spends against customers. Historically, the manifestation of that marketing was what was called detailing. That was the process of sending in a pharma sales rep into a doctor's office. That That was on its way down anyway, but then with COVID, that certainly was entirely dislocated. And we have an asset called MedPage today, which is amongst the top news sources for physicians. And so all of that activity and marketing to prescribers, to prescribing physicians is moving online. And we were, we were a beneficiary of that. Is that one of the reasons why the uh, remarkable EBITDA margins of 40%, really much more than you've uh, had before? And the record cash flow, $115 million, that's up 35% year over year. Again, everybody I know in advertising is really the opposite, Vivek. They're down about 35 Well, you know, look, I think the, the aspect of this that we are proudest of is that we've achieved these margins and these cash flows without a significant reduction in force. RIFs have been commonplace in our industry. They're happening all over the place. And what we were able to do uh, is instead of cutting jobs, is really focus on our vendors, our contracts, every choice that we make uh, outside of our people to see if we could find efficiencies. And we found those efficiencies. In addition, I think we have just been really disciplined in everything that we're doing. And, you know, everything from remote work uh, has been to the benefit of our cash flow, and you know the cash flow is important to us. Generally, we're not one of these companies that wants to be valued on future cash flow. We'd like to be valued on our current cash flow. It makes us somewhat unique. But that cash flow is fundamentally important to driving our acquisition program. We run our businesses for cash to acquire businesses that we then optimize and run for cash, and we continue to repeat. So cash flow has always been an important part uh, of what we do and, and seeing what was not just a, it was a record uh, free cash flow quarter for the company and its company's history. Uh, last question. I, I don't have much time, but uh, is the stock attractive right now for a buyback that is uh, one of the largest in uh, of both exchanges? Look, I think, we, you know, I think the company right now is, is a great value. And obviously putting in the share buyback program was designed such that when we see that the stock is can compete with our M&A in terms of return right. uh, on invested capital, uh, we're going to be buyers of our own shares. Well, I know that you're I know you best as a guy who understands M&A, but I know it's, you know, you know, value and you'll buy it if it's right. Vivek Shaw, CEO of J2 Global, symbol JCOM. Thank you, Vivek. Great to be here. Thank you, Jim. Hard to find high growth companies that are well off their high. 
with a buyback and a CEO who understands value. Jay Cobb, J2 Global, stick with Kramer. No, it doesn't create more value. It's still this much. But here's what I'll tell you. In the old days, they rewarded you shareholders with stock splits. Well, Tim Cook just did it. Elon Musk just did it. And I say, come on, the rest of you. Get individual investors back into your stocks. Stop it with the hedge funds. You're catering to your enemy. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. 1980s New York. Five titans redefined the American dream. Helmsley, Bosky, Gotti, Trump, Giuliani. Greed was good, and they wanted it all. Empires of New York, narrated by Paul Giamatti. Series premiere November 29th at 8 Eastern, only on CNBC-TV.